You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Grab your Bible and join me in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. There towards the front of your Bible. Um, I don't know if you guys had a momo or a grandmother or grandma, uh, but my momo cop, um, she was a, a back country or backwoods country Mississippi girl. Grew up in the Great Depression uh, on a family farm, and um, she was one of those individuals that uh, you know. She said, you know, during the Great Depression, she said we never went hungry, like literally never went because they grew everything. Um, she wouldn't have any money, and all of her dresses were made out of flower bags and things like that, but uh, they never went hungry. And uh, growing up in Alaska, you know, I only got to see Cop like usually about once a year. My, we'd fly down and go visit my grandparents in Louisiana. And um, I remember, I can remember distinctly a time where I had a, some ball cap. I can't remember what ball cap it was, but I remember running around outside, and I, you know, I'd... Uh, been down there and it's sunny and I got the ball cap on or whatever and I went inside and I'm you know exploring grandma's house like you do you know you know what closet has the cool things and the knickknacks and the whatever that you want to go visit and I'm running around in there and I remember grandma snatched my hat off my head and said you're inside take your hat off and I, it was just it was one of those where I was just like what in the world you know just okay you know and again next time I was I mean I didn't think about it nothing right I put the hat back and when I go outside put the hat back on I'm running and doing stuff come back inside and almost snatch the hat off my head right and it just was all of a sudden became this thing like this is a rule right there's nothing written anywhere that says uh, you know a big plaque thou shalt not wear hat inside the house right but it was Momo's house and that was the rule right that's what you you had to respond to it and to do otherwise the older I got to do otherwise was to look at my grandmother and say things like I I hate you right like to not take my hat off when I go inside Momo's house was absolute and utter sacrilege why because Momo said this is how you live in my house this is what it looks like to love me in my space and as you know, uh, you know, the older you get, and you think about those kind of rules, um, they they are based in tradition. Like I, I said this, and there was a number of folks that are my age and older that all just immediately were like, "Yeah, that's the way." You know, that's of course, this is how you this is how you live life. And everybody else is kind of like, "Okay, yeah, no, whatever." But there's this acknowledgement of who my grandmother is and the rule that she had in her space. And for me to enter into that space and not operate according to that rule defined something about my relationship with her that ought not be. In other words, because of who she is and her space, there was something about it that was almost sacred that I could not possibly bring myself to step out of that and say something against the reality of her. A couple weeks ago I was listening to a podcast that reminded me something about this uh, as it relates to our relationship with God. And it was a guy that was teaching on the nature of the word holy as it is in Scripture. uh, The concept of holiness. Uh, But when you say the word holy, anybody know? Well, give me a definition of holy. A very concise definition of holy. Set apart. Set apart. It has a a special purpose, right? So God would say that the tongs that were used in the temple, they were holy. In other words, you didn't use those tongs for picking up dog poop outside or something like that. They had a holy, set-apart, specific purpose that was to be used in there. And they, they brought up the point that the first time that the word holy is used in Scripture doesn't show up until Exodus. And it's when Moses has that experience, right, where he's out tending his sheep. Remember the story of Moses? Moses was uh, a Jew that was cast into the river, found by Egyptian royalty, raised as an Egyptian royal. He rebelled against that and fled for his life after he killed an Egyptian. And that was the first 40 years of his life. Then the next 40 years of his life, he's out tending sheep uh, for his father-in-law Jethro. Uh, and he comes to a mountain and he sees something odd. What does he see? 
A bush that doesn't burn away. It's burning, but it doesn't burn away. You guys you know when you have a bonfire or whatever, and you take the one little spruce bough and you throw it on it, it flares up real big, but then it, I mean, it, there's nothing to it. There's no mass to it. It goes away. And he sees that, but then he sees it's staying burning. It keeps burning, right? And we, you're familiar, at least you're familiar with like the Charleston Heston or the, the animated version of this, right? He goes up to it, and God says to him in that booming voice, He says, Moses, do what? Take off your sandals, take your shoes off, for the place where you are standing is, and there's the first time it's used, holy. And the the thought about that, if you think about it more, I mean, we're just so familiar, there's so many things about Scripture we're just so familiar with, right? We're just so familiar with them that we don't even think about it, right? But how weird is it that you know, when God Almighty, the one that formed the universe by the word of his mouth, comes to meet Moses, the first thing that he has to say to him is not anything about his sin, not anything about his knowledge of that, not about the fact that he's murdered somebody or anything else. The first thing that he says is, Take your shoes off. Isn't that weird to anybody else? And, and it's in conjunction with the first use of set apart, distinct, holy. This nature of this is something special. This is something great. This is something profound. And so as I dug down into this, there's it recently, in, in recent years, there's been a number of scholars that have tried to interpret that passage of Scripture uh, in relation to cultural norms of you entering into somebody's house. If, you know, if you're born and raised Alaskan and you go somewhere else, it may feel really weird to you when you go into somebody's house and you don't take your shoes off because that's normal in a lot of other places in the United States. But in Alaska, somebody comes trudging in your house and they walk through your front door and all the way into your kitchen and into the bathroom and they don't take their shoes off and you're just sitting there going what are you doing right and you're, you're panicking and so it, they say oh this is just it's a cultural thing of how you would enter into homes in the Middle East and that kind of thing but for the vast majority of Christian history and the vast majority of scholarship and nature of that it doesn't look at it as a cultural norm it says that there's something distinctly wrong with Moses' shoes that doesn't belong in a holy place where God is. You go, okay. What? Well, what did Moses do for a living? He what? He was a shepherd. And if you're a shepherd, do you think he might step in stuff occasionally? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're literally walking around livestock all day. All day. And so, literally, that there, there probably was this nature of something that was literally on his shoes that was inappropriate to be in God's space. In this holy and divine-natured space so that he says the first time, this space is set apart because God is here. My presence is here. Take your shoes off. You're entering into this. And it seems to us like that seems very abstract. It seems very... Odd. It seems very strange. It feels a lot like Momo telling me to take off my hat inside the house. Right? Is the house going to fall down if my hat's on? Like, what's the deal? And is God going to blow up if there's a little bit of sheep poop on the bottom of Moses' sandals? Well, of course not. But there is something special about God's space and God's reality that draws us in to say we can't be normal when we're in God's space. We can't be casual when we're in God's space. This is what we're going to look at this morning in maybe a little bit of a different way. Today we are beginning a three-week, call it a series, it's a rhythm that we have in our church. Last week we had our concert of prayer where we spent the whole service praying. This week we're going to be taking a look at uh, sanctity of life. Next week we're going to be taking a look at uh, sanctity of marriage as it relates to Scripture. And then the... um, the Sunday after that, we're going to be looking at uh, race and the gospel. Basically, we're just taking the hot button issues that show up all over the place and that everybody says, you don't talk about these over Thanksgiving and we're going to talk about them. Um, because we believe they're profoundly true. And when we talk about the subject of sanctity of life, it is a big hot button issue. 
it popped up this last week. There was legislation that uh, went uh, before Congress in the House uh, that was a bill uh, called the Born Alive Act. And it was a bill that was, pr- uh, that was put forward by Republican um, lawmakers uh, that wanted to pass into law uh, a federal law that said that if an abortion was happening and that abortion failed and caused the birth of that child that was in the process of being aborted, that medical providers were then legally obligated to provide life-saving services to that uh, child that had been born through that unsuccessful abortion. Um, and it was voted down uh, on absolutely partisan lines. Uh, not one single Democrat voted for uh, that bill. Uh, and I can't remember if, I don't think there was any Republicans that voted against it. Um, so it is an absolutely hot button issue. And when we think of the issue of sanctity of life, very oftentimes we boil it down to this issue of uh, abortion rights or um, right to life or right to choose or any of that's the nomenclature that gets thrown around in the subject of it. But the question I want to ask this morning as we think about that, I really do want to broaden the scope of it. It includes that as a huge component of it. But I want to broaden the scope of the discussion that we have as we're taking a look at it as Christians, as those that say we we believe what God has said, we want to live according to the way that God has spoken, and we want to live in an understanding way in the culture in which we live, what is it about life that makes it special? What is it about it that says we can't be indifferent to it? When it comes to the question of things like abortion, when it comes to the things of um, uh, questions of eugenics, when it comes to the the question of um, physicians-assisted suicide, when it comes to the issue of genetic testing for um, genetic abnormalities like, say, Down syndrome or other things like that, and, and we ask the question, can I be indifferent to those things? Can I set aside my emotions to those things? Or can I set aside my belief and just say, hey, whatever works for you, works for you, and that's, that's fine by me. So we're going to take a look at an odd passage of Scripture that I hope will give us maybe a fresh perspective on it. Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 9 and go all the way to 18. Leviticus chapter 19, starting in verse 9, says this, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean the vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer amongst your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. 
Um, most of you probably didn't wake up this morning with your January uh, Bible reading plan, and if it had on there for you to read in Leviticus, you probably didn't get excited. Uh, nor if it had numbers, you probably weren't the begat so, begat so, begat so of, of those. It's always those things that are what trip everybody up when they try to do a Bible reading plan, you know, starting in January. It catches you in these, these ones. But when you read through the book of Leviticus, uh, titled for it as the laws of the Levites, the priests, that they were to instruct their people. There's a lot of laws that are written in there that are strange. They, they, they just read odd. Uh, the, you know, ones that talk about you know how you are to to cook certain meat, and you know if you're gonna you know cook a, uh, a young goat, you don't cook it in the milk of its mother, or if you're gonna make a garment, you don't weave it together with two different kinds of fabrics, or you know all of those kind of things that just we read in our modern day world, and we're just going like, man, these just seem odd. They just seem strange. They just what in the world is all of this about? But then we read things like this, and we're like, oh. Yeah, no, okay, yeah, we don't, I mean, we don't want people to lie, we don't want people to steal, we, you know, we don't want people, uh, you know, gossiping about other people, that's okay, I can, you know, I can check those things off, those make absolute sense to me, and then we go right on past it. Uh, and where he you know, says immediately after that, verse 19, you are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. And you shall not sow your fields with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon which two kinds of material mixed together. And we just keep reading on and we're just like, okay, that one feels weird. Why does the other stuff not feel weird? Well, it's because those things are convenient for us. Like, we don't want to be lied to. And so, yeah, okay, yeah, don't do that. But what in the world? You know, polyester blend is not kosher? What's it? Literally, it wasn't kosher. That was the, that's literally what, it, literally what it means there. And it feels weird. It feels like Momo saying, take off your hat. And you're going like, I don't understand. Except when you step, take a step back and you say, to whom was this being specifically directed? Who was this for? This wasn't statutes that were given to the Canaanites or the Hittites, the Jebusites or any of these other people. Who was this given to? The Israelites. This was God's word to His people. A people that He said, you will be My covenant people. I will be your God. You will be My people. And He says something profound about them. He says, and in this, you will be holy. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. A very vast different thought process took place in the ancient world when it came to the Jewish people as to everybody else. Everybody else thought about gods as occupying space. So you'd cross the mountain range and you were entering into the space of this God. And you'd cross this river and you were entering into the space of this God. But God says here, my space is everything. What I'm concerned about is my people in whom I dwell. And in my people, they're going to be different. They're going to live different. They're going to look different. They're going to eat different. They're going to talk different. The rhythm of their week is going to be different. Everything about it is going to be different. And a lot of those things, as you look at them and look at the way that the ancient world worked and looked at the way that uh, uh, the issues of cleanliness and things like that. We look at, you know, there's huge sections on what do you do uh, when you find mold in your house or on your clothing and those kind of things. And all of that stuff indicated this decay, an offness, something that was not, uh, wasn't pure, it wasn't right, it wasn't, you know, it was, looked like death. And all of those things, it wasn't that he was saying, in those things you've committed sin. He was saying, you're impure. You've got stuff on your shoes and you're wanting to come into the house. You need to take that stuff off. There's this process to which you're entering into the space. But then we inject these kind of things in that we're like, okay, that stuff feels weird, but right in the middle of it, as if it's no different from any of it else... It's these things, look out for the poor, don't make fun of handicapped people, don't lie to people, don't, you know, all of those things. And we're like, okay, well, those make sense. Those other things don't make sense. I, I'm getting a little bit of a, a tripped up here. Well, I want us to look at a couple of these. 
And then I want us to see if we can drill down on this nature of this sacredness of life. Verse 9 has what I love uh, to teach about when it comes to biblical stewardship. All the time when people talk about biblical stewardship, we talk about tithing, right? Give a tenth. Move the decimal place over. Simple tithe. No big deal. Kingdom of God's working. Jesus is happy with you. Move on with your life. One, tithing is an Old Testament principle. It was an Old Testament thing that was, that was laid out. Uh, it was not one thing. Um, and the, the New Testament has a very vastly different picture. But if we are going to just take an Old Testament picture, we have to include this dynamic of the edges and the corners and the stuff that falls out of your hand. And you go, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, he says, when you're reaping your harvest, don't reap to the edges of the corners, don't go to the edges, and if anything falls down as you're reaping it, don't go back and pick it up. Remember, in their day, they're not thinking dollars and cents. They're not talking W-2s, and they're not talking those kind of... Like, money was not the, the currency of the day. Stuff was. Your, your harvest was. These were an agrarian people. And so when they would harvest their field... They literally would take and cut a tenth of it and they would take that tenth of it and take it to the tabernacle or later on take it to the temple and they would offer it there to the Levites, the priests who did not work the fields. They tended the, uh, the sanctuary and it was their portion to help uh, them survive and them live their life. But when it came to the actual harvesting of it, it wasn't just that you, hey, I cut my tenth off and then the other other 90% of it, that's mine, I can do whatever I want with it. He says, no, 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 you need to leave the edges and the corners. Why? Because there are the poor and the, uh, my my translation says, um, the stranger. Anybody else have a different translation for that? Alien. Uh, this was the sojourner was another term for it. This was the somebody that was not from your country. That was even literally just casually passing through your country or intentionally passing through your country. He was saying be intentional to leave margin for them. So when we think of our own finances, we think of our own life, you know, we can, you know, a lot of biblical money management stuff says, you know, always make sure you give that first tenth to the Lord and then here's you save and you do all those kind of things. Very often, I don't ever see this principle of saying, and then figure out where your margin is. Because here's the thing that he says in this he doesn't quantify that. He doesn't say, leave 10 feet or leave, you know, a half a foot or leave a bushel. Or there's no, there's no specification of how much is enough to leave. Ultimately, he's saying, this is up to you as you're living in this. How far out are you going to do that leaves a depiction for how generous you were going to be intentionally for those that had need and those that were passing through, those that you literally had no relationship with. Remember, in their day, there is no such thing as welfare. There is, I mean, it, to be poor in the ancient world was an awful existence. And so in that day, they didn't have land, they didn't have servants, and so in the, in the dynamic of this, these landowners would have servants that they would hire. The scriptures lay out what all they even talks about, you know, the worker don't keep his wages overnight. They would go and they would work in the field, and they would get paid, and that, that uh, landowner could only afford to pay so many workers. And so he would hire whoever he could hire, but then there would be poor people, they didn't have land and didn't have things to take care of themselves. And the mandate that was left here was to leave margin for them to come and work. For them to be able to provide for themselves even if you could not pay them to come harvest your own field, you could give them the dignity of work. You do know that work is not a result of the fall. The fact that work is hard is a result of the fall. But man was given, man and woman was given the responsibility of work prior to sin. God said, tend the garden. Grow it, mature, make it be flourished. Let, let it be in that place. We, I mean, a lot of times I think we think of the garden eating as everybody's laying around not in togas and just you know dropping drip, you know, grapes in their mouths. Is there, that was not the it was it was work. It was enjoyable work. 
because they worked and the bushes produced more. But the, the result of the fall was that work became hard. There's an element of this that he is looking at these people and he's saying they deserve the dignity of work. They deserve the dignity to live. Do you provide margin to allow them to do that? As we think about our own day, how do we intentionally, as we're looking at our own personal finances and things like that, create margin in Chris Cop's personal budget to be able to go, look, if I, if I have a neighbor that needs something, if there's a single mom that I know that needs something, I shouldn't have, my first response shouldn't have to be to go to the church and say, hey, do we have a benevolence fund so that we can tend to this thing? It should just be to simply take care of it if the Lord gives me margin to be able to do that. And nobody has to know about it. That's the that's what's good. He's not keeping track of who walks through his field and gleans in there. He's giving them the dignity of work. Verse 11, You shall not steal or deal falsely or lie to one another or swear in God's name that something is true when it's not and, def- and profane the name of the Lord. This is just being truthful to other human beings. Is there anything more infuriating than, and, and harder to overcome in relationship with somebody when they have lied to you? Like that's a pretty hard... I mean, people can do bad things to you and you can forgive them of those. But if they've lied to you, it's just, it's just one of those things that, that it becomes this filter in your mind that you're just going, I, don't, I just don't know if I can, I just don't know if I can believe you. I mean, you're, yeah, you sounding convincing right now, but I just don't know, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can believe the words that are that are coming out of your mouth. And so, in this way, it it separates us in a way where we can caricaturize this person as as not being worthy of my love, not being worthy of my trust, because they're not truthful. And if that's us, then we put ourselves in that position where it makes other people have to look that way for us, right? I don't ever want to be somebody that when you know when I tell you something or you think of Chris Cop, that your first thought is, yeah, that's a guy that doesn't tell the truth. That no, no, he's he's gonna tell the he's gonna tell the truth. You, ever, you guys ever met anybody that tells ninety eight percent of the truth? That's really frustrating. Uh, it's, it's not that it's necessarily like an outright lie. They just omit some of the information that would change the way that you interpreted the information that they, they did tell you uh, about the scenario. And it manipulates it in such a way. And then when you do get that last little 2% and it changes everything about the other 98% of it and you're just like, I can't, I can't do this, right? That nature of manipulation separates us and it demeans the view that we have of each other. And he says, listen, don't, don't do that with each other. He goes on to say, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you until morning. That picture of, uh, listen, if, if somebody works for you, pay them. Acknowledge what they did. Acknowledge their work. Pay them. Don't keep it for yourself. Don't be stingy. If you made a promise, then be truthful in the nature of that. Acknowledge that they worked and they deserved what they had to do. I find the next one, verse 14, pretty fascinating. He says, You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. So literally, he's he's saying, if somebody is disabled... If they can't hear, what would be the the most atrocious thing that you could do for that person would be to curse them. Maybe they're not looking at you so they can't read your lips, but you're you're cursing them behind literally standing behind their back, knowing full well they can't hear you. Or how cruel it would be if somebody that's blind and you intentionally, hey, watch this, and you move the chair in front of them as they stumble over it. Acknowledging the reality that they are a human being, but looking at their disability and saying, I can take advantage of that. For whatever, my own enjoyment, my personal pleasure, whatever it is, don't disregard the physically handicapped. 
but you shall revere your God, he says. Verse 15, do not do injustice in judgment. I find this one to be fascinating in our present day world. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. In other words, he's saying it doesn't matter what the person's social status is. It doesn't matter if they're a rich, powerful person or a poor nobody. Justice is intended to be equal. Right, what's, the, what's the statue that's out in front of every courthouse that you've ever seen? Right? It's Lady Justice. She's blind, got a thing tied around her eyes, and she's holding a scale that's level. That's the idea of this. Now we know, because we watch the news, <laughs> uh, it's fascinating as I'm sitting here, I was thinking this past week with news events that were going on, now would be a really great time for every other past president and vice presidential candidate to go through every box that's sitting around in any closet or uh, garage that they have and maybe just check. I'm just saying, right? Uh, and everybody wants to, you know, take sides of, you know, Trump's being investigated for this stuff. Now Biden's got these saying, well, see, it's going like, doesn't, treat them equal. It doesn't matter if they got a D in front of their name or an R in front of their name. If they did something wrong, treat it equal. Because here's the truth of this. If you're a bottom-rung staffer anywhere in the federal government and top-secret documents were found in your home, that's a bad day. That's a very bad day. But somehow that's different than any other level of things. We want to be treated fairly. The kids in your classroom teachers want to be treated fairly. You teachers, as you are engaging with uh, administrators, want to be treated fairly. We want to be treated fairly. And what gives us the understanding that that should be? We know that it's not in the world, but there's something about it that says it ought to be this way. You shall not go about slander as a slanderer amongst your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. Slander is an interesting thing because it's very closely related to uh, gossip. Um, if I had time, I wish I had a whiteboard up here. I'd draw, draw it out for you. Uh, genuine relationship with somebody that you love and trust. Communication is uh, truthful and kind. Right? It's them speaking truth, like even if the truth is hard truth, like you're being a jerk right now. That's, that may be truthful, but it can be said in a kind way. And that's a helpful sphere. But you can also have stuff that is truthful, but not kind. And we would call this gossip. It may be truthful information that we're talking about with somebody, but the fact that we're doing it where they're not listening is not kind. It doesn't give them any margin to be able to speak into it and it changes or manipulates other people's views of them. That's what makes it gossip. It may be true, but it's not kind. Now, again, this is the problem of English. Gossip in our context is not always true, right? And that's when it shifts to the other side. It's not true and not kind. And I think that's what slander is. It's saying what is not true in an unkind way to an individual that changes the way in which people view them. And he says, listen, don't be that kind of people. Don't be somebody that is slandering other people, changing the way that other people view them. Uh, uh, and so, uh, literally acting against the life of your neighbor. One slandering word can literally change the trajectory of somebody else's life. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not, or, but shall not incur sin because of him. This hate or resentment in heart is he saying here? Is he says, listen, don't hang on to resentment, don't hang on to bitterness, and just let it sit and fester inside of your life. If you've got an ought or a beef with somebody you may surely reprove your neighbor. Go deal with them. 
Don't just harbor it in your heart and say, well, every time you see that person, you're just angry, and every time they pop up on your phone, you just want to... Go deal with it. And don't incur sin because of them. Acknowledging the reality of what relationship is, acknowledging them as a human being in that place. And then he says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. And here we have uh, what is quoted as one of the two great commandments You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles because Jesus, when He was asked, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And He said, uh, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second is tied up with the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, in recent months and years... We've heard this phrase used outside of the Christian context, even in terms of things or trying to talk into the Christian context of um, like mask mandates was, well, it's an act of loving my neighbor, viewing it as I'm going to put on this mask because I want to show I'm loving my neighbor. And however those things have played out and they've had political implications and everything else. And I don't think it's any of it's actually helped us actually love our neighbor very well. In fact, as I look at the states of our nation, and we ask the question, if I were to grade us, as all the teachers in the room, and how well we are doing at, uh, I don't know if in the younger grades, if it still has, you know, like getting along with your classmates. I remember that was, you know, one of those things you got kind of marks on when I was a kid, get along with others, right? How well are we doing at loving our neighbor? don't know that it's super great. Now there's something that was said throughout all of this that again feels odd. It feels actually out of place. Because all these are directionally this way, right? Don't lie to Brit. Right? Don't steal from Luke. Don't build, hold resentment against Scott. Like right, these, these directed to people kind of things. But he concludes every single one of these little sections with a phrase. Did anybody see it? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Why? Why is that? Again and again and again and again in these spaces. Because all of these passages... None of these passages have anything to do with clothing, food, drink, sleep. They all have to do with people. And the reason that we say that life is sacred, life is holy, is because distinct from everything else, you were made in the image of God. Jerry said he had to leave so he could go cut some firewood because he was low on firewood and he needed to use the daylight hours. None of us are going to begrudge him when he goes out and he cuts down a tree and he cuts that tree up into little chunks and then he takes those chunks and he splits them into pieces and he takes those pieces and he puts them in a fire and burns them. And none of us will say, you monster! Because the tree's not made in the image of God. But you better bet if one of you guys does that to another person, monster is going to be the least of the descriptors that show up there, right? Why is that? Because there is something unique in us that knows, that knows there's something special about people. And here's the thing science can't answer that. Of all of the the issues that are floating around with um, humanism and evolutionary theory and all those kind of things, the biggest one, even still today, that is this thing that uh, honest, not not uh, guys like Richard Dawkins and those that have like a, a big bone to pick or whatever, but honest, skeptical atheists and things like that that are wrestling with this. The one question that they can't answer, they don't have an answer for, is morality. 
why is it abjectly wrong for me to eat my children, whereas it's not abjectly wrong for a hamster to do it? There's something about it that is definitively, not, not just, well, society wouldn't work if it went some other way. There's something outside of society to say it this way. If we could think of a horrible thing, even if that horrible thing never happened, it still would be wrong. Think of some atrocious murder, some horrible genocide. Even if it never took place, it would still be wrong. Why? Because it's outside of us. We're not the ones that define it. And why is that directed towards people? Because there's something about people, regardless of who they are, that bears the image of God. In fact, the Apostle James said this in James when he said, when he was describing our tongue, and he he said, there's this thing that ought not be. He says, with the same mouth, we bless our Father. And with that same mouth, we curse people who are made in His image. He says, friends, this ought not be. And why ought it not be? Because you've just walked in grandma's house and you're refusing to take off your hat. It's his space. These are his people. We are called to love them. And so what this means, even as we look at this, this picture of neighbor that is used here, all of these, regardless of who they are, even if they are the, the alien, the stranger, or even if they are, he says in verse 18, nor grudge against the sons of your people, the children of your enemy, as far as they go down, the alien amongst us, the poor, the rich, the, the physically handicapped, your next door neighbor, your neighbor across the way, all of them are your neighbor. And he says, he makes no distinction. You are to love them. Jesus took it a step further because what did he do with that passage? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, but I say to you what? Love your enemies. Whoa, wait, 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 wait a second. I don't. I mean, how can I do that? They are my enemy because they're made in the image of God too. See, there's this distinctness in God's space that He has defined in us that looks at every single human being regardless of who they are, regardless of whether they have any benefit towards us or not, regardless of how old they are or young they are, regardless of their mental faculties, all of those things to look at them and say they are human of equal value to me. Love my neighbor as myself. So what that means for us today in 2023, 2023, can you believe that? That just sounds really weird. The world was supposed to end 23 years ago for everybody that's real young. Uh, What that means for us is for me to love my neighbor as myself means that I am to love my drunk neighbor. It means I'm to love my unmarried, pregnant, teenage girl neighbor. It means I am to love my unborn neighbor. It means I'm to love my mentally disabled neighbor and my old neighbor. It means I am to love my rich neighbor and my poor neighbor. Why? Because they are the image of God. They have value. They have humanity. We've lost that. We've lost that. We we take and we just caricaturize somebody according to what we think they look like and their denom- their uh, uh, 
uh, political party or we caricaturize them based upon their religious standing or we caricaturize them based on their you know generation right all the memes about the boomers and millennials and everything else and all of us gen xers are going like what are we chopped meat right like we're not in any of those things but we look at all of those and we say we are called to love them distinctly different now what are we to do in a world that doesn't agree with us in that we love them anyways we just love them anyways and sometimes, friends, that's going to get harder. It's going to get harder for us to do that, not easier for us to do that. It's going to become more costly for us to do that. Our church has had a long history of quite a number of folks that have stepped into that sphere of doubt and frustration of young people who. Uh, got pregnant unexpectedly and said, what do I do? And then stepped into that and say, well, we'll help you and raise that child for you in adoption. It's an incredible thing. We've had people in our church that have taken in people that had mental faculties. We have people that are taking care of aged parents. We have all of those kind of dynamics and looking at them through the lens of the sacredness of life. So when it comes to what I think really is the simple question of abortion in the world, the Christian just simply has to ask the question, when do I think they get the image of God? Does the image of God immediately come upon them when their umbilical cord gets cut? Does it come upon them a week before that happens? Two weeks before that happens? A month before that happens? Do they get the image of God when they cross whatever that imaginary threshold is of what they call the age of viability? When if they come out of the womb, there's a higher likelihood that they will be their organs will function the way that they're supposed to and their lungs will function the way that they're supposed to and that at that point in time, then whenever that demorphous thing, then they get the image of God... Do I have some kind of weird thing that they have like a gradient, like they sort of have the image of God at this point, and then now they've got a little bit more of that, you know? Or do we look at the Scriptures that say, God knew us when we were in our mother's womb? As the psalmist wrote in um, Psalm 139, of, when I was yet an unformed substance... You knew me. Personhood. The question of when we ought to love our neighbor, I don't think is a hard question. There are lots of, I will acknowledge, there are lots of other hard questions. But the question of when do we start loving them as our neighbor, not a hard question. So when we wrestle with these questions with other people, let us wrestle with it with people that disagree with us on these things with the same tenacity to look at them and say, they're also my neighbor. I am to love them. Why? Because the Lord, my God, has showed me what His love is. He's showed me what His space is. He's shown me that I entered in not fixed up. Not set right. That's why in the temple there was the most holy place. The holy of holies. And guess who got to go there? Not you. Not me. But a high priest once a year. But when Jesus died and took upon Himself all of our rebellion, all of our sin, everything upon our lives that was coating the bottom of our shoes, that said, that can't be there. Because the reality is that was coating our whole life. He took upon all of that and He atoned for it. He paid for it. And then He split the veil and He says we have direct access to the most holy place. Did you do that? Once we got ourselves cleaned up? No. Thank goodness for that. 
He says, no, we did it when we trusted Him. When we embrace it, when we acknowledge the fact that He is the Lord our God. That He's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And in that, the Gospel changes everything. And it changes the way that we view the world around us. The issue of sanctity of life really is a loving your neighbor as yourself, which the Bible does not separate away from loving God. If you say, I love God, and yet I'm not going to love my neighbor. God says, you're not loving me. You don't, we don't get to separate the two of those things. It's kind of the equivalent of me saying, uh, I love my wife, but I don't love Michelle. You don't, it doesn't work that way. You don't, get to, you don't get to do that. He says that the two are connected. So as we step back into a world that disagrees with us on all of this, just acknowledge that. The world doesn't like this. Love them anyways. Love them anyways. Because if you're sitting in church today and you believe in Jesus, somebody loved you enough this way too. What a good gift it is to enter into God's space and have Him look at us with everything that is real about us and say, holy because of Jesus. Sanctified. Set apart for me. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for Your Word. I pray that um, this would be something that spurs thoughts in our minds, God, as we have conversations with people that are wrestling with some of these things. Maybe even some here today that just don't really know where they land on this stuff. Um, God, how we vote on this stuff, I think, matters a lot less than how we live on this stuff. And so help us to see the people that are around us as our neighbor that is deserving of love because of you. Because you are the Lord our God. And as we go, we bring your space with us. And this kind of justice, this kind of truthfulness, this kind of generosity, this kind of thoughtfulness, this kind of care for others, it is deserving of your space. So God, as we walk through our life, help us to take our hat off. Because it's your space. We love you, God. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.